I want to just take a moment and just speak on, on the topic of trust. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where your expectation uh, and reality didn't seem to line up. You know, maybe where you are going through a season, going through something where you're like, wait a minute, it wasn't supposed to be like this. I, I believe that in anything, whether it's life or leadership, really the, the size of our frustration it equals the, the gap between what we expect and our reality. You know, this is really what hype is. If you think about it, hype is when the product doesn't match the promotion. You can think if you're driving through a fast food, junk food drive through you know, you look at the promotion. The promotion looks amazing. That burger actually looks like food. <laughs> and then you look at that picture and you go to the little window where, you know, a, 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 a cloud of oil hits your face. And then they give you the product and you look at the product, you look at the picture, you look at the product and you're like, excuse me, this is not what I ordered. And you're like, no, no, this is that. It's like, this is not that because that looks healthy. That actually looks like food, but this looks like a dead fried rat. That, my friend, is hype. That's also why we say church could never, ever be accused of hype because there's nothing that we could say. There's nothing we could do. There's no song we could ever write or sing that could ever match the splendor and the magnitude of God's majesty and who He is. And so in life, we can go through seasons where just, you know, life's reality doesn't line up with what we expected for us to be going through in this season. In order to understand this, we're going to look at one of the most famous sermons that Jesus had ever given. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, at this point, Jesus, he's outside of the cities. He's out on the, on the hillside down by the Lake of Galilee. There is thousands of people that have, that have come in to listen to this new young preacher that had been preaching and crazy things had been happening when he was preaching and he was doing good. And so thousands of people, they lined up. And we find this whole setting in the first letter in the New Testament called the Gospel of Matthew around chapter 5. Now, in order to understand the sermon, we have to understand the audience, the people that Jesus is actually preaching to. Many of them were Jews. Um, Israel, at this point, they were under the occupation of the Roman Empire. Really, the, the situation was that there was financial unrest. There was political unrest. There was social unrest, not unlike what we are seeing right now in the world today. Um, the, the, the people were in turmoil. They were under occupation. There was poverty. And people really didn't know what the future held. So when Jesus starts his sermon, he says, Blessed are the poor. Man, there would have been an amen from the crowd. Because so many of them were poor. So many of them were struggling financially. Some historians say that, you know, parents really at this point, Jewish parents at this point in history were were forced to choose which of their children they could feed. I mean, they were, the poverty was, was extreme. And so Jesus, he's up there and he's speaking and he really, he's, he's being a man of the people. He's, he's addressing the very topic they're dealing with. He's like, blessed are those who hunger, those who mourn, those who are thirsty. You could just, you would have heard people going, amen. Like, I don't know exactly who you are, but you're preaching my language, amen. Because this is the situation they were in. Jesus like, blessed are those of you who are persecuted. I can always, every time I read that, I'm picturing this Jewish man standing next to a Roman soldier. Just like, amen. 
looking at the soldier. Amen. You know, like there would have been such, you know, relevance as he's speaking to the crowd. But then Jesus starts talking about the insults, the accusations, the turmoil that as believers and followers of Jesus, you will experience. And, and Jesus, he's slowly laying a foundation that following Jesus is not a guarantee of a life of pure comfort. And he really starts risk losing his audience very quickly because in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 5, he starts to assure them, hey, I'm not here to abolish the religious law, but I'm actually here to fulfill it. You see, at this point, the Jews, they're living under the rules and the laws of the Old Testament. You know, Moses out in the wilderness. Some of you might have seen Prince of Egypt. There can be miracles. You know, Moses has been given the law and all the, the do's and the don'ts of how to live in a relationship with God. And, and there was hundreds of laws. And, and people were hoping this Jesus guy would have, you know, gotten rid of all these. And because at this point, if there's anyone the Jews almost dislike more than the Romans, more than the tax collectors, it was the religious people, the Pharisees, the priests. They were the ones who were, you know, so making sure they were living to the letter of the law. I mean, there was, they were even like making sure in the herb gardens, they were cutting 10% of growth on their mint and on their herbs and all the different, you know, spices they had growing in order to make sure they fulfilled the law. Now that in itself is not bad. The problem was they lacked mercy. They lacked empathy. They lacked grace and justice. They would sidestep the church, the beggars, the hurting people on the way to church. And Jesus, he's speaking into the situation in Matthew 5, verse 20. And he says, unless your righteousness, that's your right standing, before God, unless that is greater than that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these people that are cutting 10% of their mints and herbs, unless it's greater than that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, these guys, they would look down and they would condemn anyone who didn't live at the same standard. And, and the Jews, they were hoping, the audience were hoping that Jesus, he would abolish this law so they didn't have to live like that. But Jesus does the opposite. He said, as a matter of fact, I'm not here to get rid of what the Pharisees said. He's saying, no, actually, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be better than the Pharisees. These guys that are on their knees cutting mint and herbs, you've got to be better. Then Jesus, he goes through the sermon and we can see that he raises the bar in every area of life. He says, you've heard you're not allowed to sleep around. I'm saying you can't even lust. You've heard it say you can't commit murder. I'm saying you cannot even hate or be angry. So he raises the bar in every single area of a life. And really he's saying your standard is too low. If there's any message really he's trying to say is you thought it was difficult to follow me. It's not difficult. It's impossible. What a great message. Thanks for tuning in. You know, follow Jesus. It's not hard. It's impossible. Peace. You know, no. The reason for that is because the law was given to deal with our behavior. Jesus, he came to deal with our hearts. It was behavior modification through information versus heart transformation through revelation. So in this state of shock, in this state of disbelief, 
Jesus, he brings us to the heart of this whole sermon in Matthew 6, 33, where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now listen, I know the preachers, they say this all the time. If you can just remember one thing and one thing only, it should be this. And it's a preacher trick because we want you to remember everything. But let me tell you today, if you could just remember one thing and one thing only, it would be this one verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. If you can remember that verse, it will save you so much heartache. The problem is this. Listen to me. Too many Christians spend too much time trying to understand or explain God. When we have never been called to understand God, we've been called to trust Him. Let me say that again. You have never been called to understand God. You have been called to trust Him. Isn't that what happens? We become Christians or we become Jesus followers and instantly, what happens? Your friends who are not Christians, they call you. They're like, I heard you're a Christian now. I heard you go to church now. Often with a sense of anger, you know, because they've, they know some other Christians that they don't like, so they think you're like that now. And so they're like, well, if you're a Christian, how come and now suddenly you become the lawyer, the legal representative of God? And now you have to explain everything that's ever happened in human history that's accredited with God. You're a Christian now. Well, how come the Crusades? Well, how come this? Well, how come he did this? Where was he at this point? What happened in this part of the world? And suddenly we get bombarded with all these questions. And if we don't watch out, we can easily fall into the trap where we think we have to speak on behalf of God. And suddenly we have to understand God. One guy who tried to do this in the Old Testament, some say it's the oldest book in the Bible, his name is Job. Job, he, uh, he, 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 was in a, he was in a season where, you know, he was living a good life. You know, he had a great family. He, he loved God. And suddenly everything just went wrong for the guy. Fam like sickness took out his family. They all died. He lost all his wealth. He lost his job. He lost his own health. Everything went wrong. And he had these, what we call Job's friends. He had three friends. And they kept saying, oh, the reason for this, you must have done something wrong. It's karma. You've done something bad. Bad energy. You know, what have you done? You know, God is not like this. And, and they almost pushed Job to, to speak on behalf of God. Now, Job, he kept resisting. He kept going, no, 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 it's not like that. And you don't understand. But you could see there was a pride in there. And almost arrogantly, he starts to say, you know what? I know God, you don't. And he starts speaking on behalf of God about why God does everything. I don't know if you've ever met these. I think I have on social media. You know, they, they somehow know everything of what God is thinking about every little detail. And so he starts speaking, and it's almost as if God, he gives him the line saying, fine, I'll play along. But then in chapter 38, God says, all right, it's time. It's time to talk about this. And, you know, what I love about God is that when God goes into boss mode, he actually uses sarcasm. Because we go into Job 38, and I'll, I'll read you a bunch of just, this is this basic God pulling Job into school. 
It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He says, prepare to defend yourself. I'm going to question you and you shall answer me. Now, listen, I've never heard the audible voice of God ever. But I will say, if I ever was to hear the audible voice of God, I would hope it would be something like, I love you. You're my favorite. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hope the first time I hear God's audible voice, it's not prepare to defend yourself. I will question you and you shall answer me. But this is what happened. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or who placed its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And you can almost feel Job in the midst of it. My bad. I think I've got a coffee on this stove. I got to go. You know, like, I, and Job, God pulls him back, said, no, tell me if you know this. Where's the way to where light lives? And where does darkness reside? Can you take him to the places? Surely you know, Job, because you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouse of the snow or seen the storehouse of the hail? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? And Job again and again tries to pull out. And God's like, nope, get back here. You will answer me. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Do, they, do you send the lightning bolts on their way, Job? Do they report to you and say, yes, sir, here we are. And basically what God is trying to say, he shows us in Job 41 verse 11, where God says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Basically, what God is saying is, who do I owe an explanation to? It's like you parents, you, you would get this. You, you, you know when you're, when you're trying to tell your kids, like, hey, go clean up the room. And they're like, why? And you look at them like, were you born when... <laughs> you don't say that. <laughs> That's weird. That's crazy. Don't do that, please. I know we've been homeschooling our kids for a few weeks now, but just keep it together, man. We're going to get through this. No, like at some point you say to your kids, hey, I don't need to explain myself to you. If I've said something, I've said it. And God is like, hey, who do I owe an explanation to? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And you see Job's conclusion in Job 42.1. It says, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. And I was talking about things I know nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. See, this is the challenge. We get caught up and we stagnate in our lives because we think we need to understand God. You know, this, this is what we do. And I've seen it again and again in life and in ministry. People pulling the handbrake, depending where you are in the world right now, you know, pulling the handbrake and saying, that's it. I'm staying here. I'm not moving one more step. I'm not believing. I'm not praying. I'm not giving. I'm not inviting. I'm not doing anything. I'm stopping right here until someone explains to me what is going on. Well, I'm here to say to you, you might be sitting there for quite some while. You might be sitting there for a while because we've never been called to understand God. Now, I don't understand God. Like, 
sometimes people come to me with, 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 with questions and the amount of times someone will come up to me with a question about something that's going on in their life and I guess they think I work for him so I should know, have like an inside knowledge about what God is doing. But someone will come up to me and say, how come this happened? How come I just lost my grandma? How come, you know, this person walked out on me? How come I'm sick? How come this is going on in the world? How come my business just failed? I mean, the amount of people in church life, just in the short time we've had church here, you know, people coming up say, I just lost everything. Our house burnt down. I, you know, I, we sat with people where car crashes, where both parents passed away and children are left behind and constantly asking, how come this happened? See, people don't have a problem with God's power. They have a problem with His heart. The amount of times I will talk to someone and, you know, someone will say, what about God? And really the, the main thing people understand is that, well, if there is a God, then surely he's in control. So people don't have a problem with that part. The problem that often people have is that, yeah, there might be someone who's in control, but we don't know if he's good. And that is what scares people. How come this abuse had to happen? Where was God in that season of my life? Where was God in those nights when I was crying myself to sleep? And when I was younger, and as a younger pastor, I would try, I don't know, out of arrogance, out of empathy, I guess, I would, I would like clutch for some kind of answer, a pop psychology, pop theology answer. God, well, you know, maybe this, maybe it's all got, you know, whatever. And I have to be honest, guys, and just go, I don't know. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. I don't know why we're going through what we're going through as a country and as a nation and as a world right now. I don't know why your business failed. I don't know why that marriage failed. I don't know why this and this is happening with your family. I do not know. I'm not equipped to understand God, whether it's a family that lost everything, whether it's a mom and dad that's going through a divorce. I remember a few years ago, I, I got the call that a, the no brother wants to get being told that my brother had passed away in a car crash. He was 39 at the time. This is, you know, nine years ago. And I had people would come to me and say, well, how come that happened? How come your brother died in a car crash? I was like, I don't know. Couldn't God have saved him? Yeah, he could have. Couldn't he have at least pulled him out of the truck before it hit the side of the mountain? Yeah, he could. Or couldn't he have at least killed him on impact so he didn't have to suffer? Yeah, he could have. So how come he didn't? Well, I don't know. But then again, I'm not called to know. I'm not called to understand God. I'm called to trust Him. And I trust Him with all of my heart. Because I understand that I'm a, I'm a finite, limited human being trapped inside of time. And I'm trying to understand an unlimited, infinite God outside of time. It would be like... You know, it would be like speaking to a character in a Disney movie and asking them to describe Walt to me. You know, it would be like going to Mickey and go, hey, Mickey, you're so fine, by the way. Hey, Mickey, um, could you explain to me, you know, like who Walt is? And Mickey would be saying there like, well, you know, you know, like Mickey was saying, hey, you trying to get his gang together, Goofy and Donald and get them all together. And, and, and I'd be like, Explain to me what Walt is like. And someone would be like, well, I think I saw his hand once. I said, oh, wow. 
So I'm like, I think I saw his pen once. And they could all describe the little aspects they have of this three-dimensional person named Walt. Such a silly, silly example, I get that. But let me tell you though, that the distance between a two-dimensional Walt Disney character and a three-dimensional person named Walt Disney, the distance between that, it fades in comparison between the distance between you and I as created human being and our unlimited God who created everything. It is so far beyond what we have access to. I get so frustrated as a Christian, as a pastor, when you, when you, when you hear people that have apparent these argumented opinions about this and that books, you know, detailed books explaining, you know, thing after thing about how things in the godly and the heavenly realms they, 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 I mean, I've, I've read books where it's like, well, angels, they do this. And on a Wednesday, these angels do that. And on a Thursday, Daniel, he gets coffee. And on a Friday, these coffees, they, like, these angels wear blue. And it's like, where are you getting all this information from? Could it be that we add to the Bible? Because trusting God is just not enough. Could it be that in our human arrogance that we need to know and we need because knowledge is power? Could it be that we are not okay to trust what we have been given? Is the Bible the answer to everything? No, but we, we know what we need to know. We are on a need to know basis and God has given us what we need to know for this season of our lives. Could it be that that's not enough for us? So we add to the Bible in order to appease the human arrogance. Could it be that maybe we are not mentally or revelatory equipped to understand all aspects of God that maybe one day the Bible says that we will go to heaven and in heaven there will be continuous worship for all eternity. Maybe that is because for all of eternity, we will for every moment of time, whatever time will be in a place where there will be no time, but for every moment of time, there will be a new revelation of who God is, a new facet, a new side of His majesty that we will continue to see something new. And every moment will be like, whoa, wow, I didn't know you were that good. I didn't know that side of you. I had never known you like this. And our only response will be a, a response of worship, a response of, wow, God, you are holy. You are above. You are greater. You are bigger. You are better than I could ever have imagined. And there will be a continuous response to who God is because there is a continuous revelation of who He is. He is unlimited. But we are called to trust Him. And the cross shows us that we can trust Him. That's why whenever someone asks a question that you can't answer or understand, always start with the cross. Always answer any question through the cross because the cross shows us His heart. We have this in every Easter. Easter is coming up and we have... Every Easter, this, this campaign that says cross equals love. And we do that because we believe that the cross shows us his heart. I don't need to understand how he does it or why he does it or doesn't do something as long as I can trust him. So when someone says, why did this happen? The answer really is, I don't know, but can we talk about who Jesus is? Can we talk about that he is good? And let's look at the issues 
in the light of that. I don't know why that happens. Some people will say, how come bad things are happening to good people? You ever heard that? I'm sure that's being asked a lot these days. How come all these bad things are happening to good people? That question always confuses me. I always look around and go, who are all these good people we're talking about? I look around and go, I haven't met them. I look in the mirror and go, I definitely haven't met them. For me, the question is not how come bad things are happening to good people. For me, the bigger mystery and the mystery of the gospel is how come so much good is happening to so many bad people? All of us have made mistakes. All of us have messed up. Yet God's goodness continue to be poured out on us. I don't know about you, but I was lost and then I was found. I was blind, but now I see. And all I know is the same God who died on that cross for you and me. He would not have done this and he would not have let it happen. He would not hurt you for any other reason. You can trust him. So surely there's another reason. Surely there's something else happening that I can't explain. But I, but I believe this in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. So I can't explain it. I don't even understand it. But in the light of the cross, I trust him. So what do we do? Well, first, we seek first the kingdom of God. We seek him. Why? Because he's not ignorant. God is not unaware. Listen, God knows what you need, not just what you want. That's completely different. He knows what you need. There's a difference between what you need and you want. That's the whole battle of life. You know, so often we, we, we want what we want and we, we don't want what we need. And the problem is if only we would want what we need instead of needing what we want. Do you get what I'm saying? And so God knows what you need. It says seek first. Seek is an active word. Seek is not like, oh, found it, done. No, seek is seek and keep on seeking. That means that your direction is towards Jesus. We say in church, your direction is more important than your position. Is your life moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, it says, and his righteousness. What does that mean? That means that our acceptance by God is not based on what I've done. There'll be people sitting here now saying, oh, if only you knew me, if you know what I had done, if you know the mistakes I've done, you wouldn't say that God's purpose or God's goodness is for me. Hey, this is not based on what you've done. It's not even based on what I've done. God doesn't love me because of, I've been so good. No, God loves me. His love towards me, his acceptance towards me is through Jesus. That it's based on what he has done. We find access through Jesus. It is his righteousness. Do not try and make this on your own. So every time we feel guilty, every time we feel condemned, every time there's a mistake, remember, go back to the cross. We think back on something we did in the past. Let me say, if you're gonna think back, keep going back. Go 2000 years back and go back to the cross. And you will see that God in heaven, he died upon that cross for you and me, and he took our mistakes so that today we can believe. I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I'm just, I'm a Christian. I'm just not very good at it. I don't know where this has come from. What, the Bible doesn't talk about good Christians versus bad Christians. There is no such thing. You are either a Christian or you're not. I got three beautiful daughters. They're my children. Listen, they're my children on their best day, as much as they're my children on their worst day. If they mess up, it's not like, well, 
you're your mother's children today. No, they're still my children. You know, they're not less my children. There might be some stuff we've got to work out. There might be some consequences. There might be things we need to work through. But the relationship stays the same legally, emotionally, you know, in every single way. It is the same with you and Jesus. You know, if you're a child of God, you're a child of God. You're not a good child. You're not a bad child. You're a child of God. You are accepted by Him through Jesus. So Jesus, He invites us. He says, seek me first. Stay with me, abide with me, and I will stay with you. The one who died on the cross for you, he knows what you need. So if you haven't received it yet, if you haven't received your healing yet, if you haven't received your breakthrough yet, if that business, that marriage, that family, it, that situation hasn't turned around yet, it's not about whether he loves you or not. He does. That's settled. The cross shows us that he loves you. It's not whether he's able to or not. Because if the cross shows us his love, the empty grave shows us his power. So it's not that he doesn't love you. He loves you. It's not that he cannot turn your situation around. He can. Well, so there's another reason. Well, there is. So what is it? I don't know. But neither do you. But hey, that's okay. Because we're not called to understand God. We're called to trust him. We're called to trust him in whatever season that we are in. And then there's the promise attached to it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's our responsibility. Now his responsibility is, and then all these things will be given to you as well. Some of us, we seek the things before we seek God. It's not your responsibility. Your responsibility, my responsibility is to keep seeking Jesus. You know, no situation changes that. No virus changes that. No financial breakdown changes that doesn't matter what season we find ourselves in today. We are still called to love God and love people. Those are two constants that never change. So we seek Him, we seek His righteousness, and we trust Him with all the other things. The challenge is that we want it done our way, isn't it? I mean, as a parent, we have these moments where, you know, we want to give our kids something, but we can't because they want it done their way. And until they trust us with the the process, they can't receive the promise. I remember once I was at a, um, I'll finish with this, I remember I was at a shop once and you know, every parent played this like, I'm the best parent kind of game. And, and so I was with the kids at the shops and uh, my, my wife was home or somewhere. And, and so we, we buying groceries and, and I had this, this, this brain, brain flash where I was like, all right girls, um, this is what we're gonna do. Uh, once, we, once we get home, um, we are, the, the, all of us, and they're like, yeah, we're going to have, yeah, and it's like, we're going to have ice cream. And they're like, yeah, and one of them, I had two of my daughters with them, and one of them, my daughters was like, yeah, ice cream, thanks, Teddy, you're the best. And I was like, oh, I'm so good. I looked at the cash register lady, and she's like, oh, you're such a good daddy, and I'm like, you know, thinking back, I know. Then I looked at my other daughter, not the same reaction. She kind of looked at me and I think her brain was saying, wait a minute, if he can give me ice cream then, then he has the ability to give me ice cream now. So she looked at me and she said, no. I was like, what? That's not, that's, that's not an appropriate answer. Like I haven't I asked you anything. I'm just telling you what's happening. It's like, and she goes, no. I go, what? She goes, I want, I, I want ice cream now. I said, well, you're not, you're not gonna get ice cream now. You're gonna get ice cream when we get home. And she goes, no, I want it now. 
and you could you could feel the tension, the the atmosphere in the whole shop closed, changed. You can see the register lady, she started like doing the products a little bit faster. And my daughter's like, you know, I want it now. And I was like, you're not gonna get it now, you're gonna get it when we get home. And she goes, no, I want it now. And she's like, a scene is starting. You know when a scene starts, you're trying to keep it cool, but you've got that one, you know, one drop of sweat that's rolling down your back. And you're like, I'm trying to keep it together. The lady is shutting down her little protection, you know, you know, visor to make sure that nothing happens. You can see, you know, people, parents, you know, shoving their kids along. Come on, kids, nothing to see here. And I'm like in this yelling fight with my daughter. I'm not proud of it, but I'll admit it because we're in church. This is vulnerable. I'm in your home. You're sitting there drinking a cup of coffee. Well done. So I'm like, you're going to get it when we, oh, you're going to get it when we get home, all right? And so we're like back and forth. Why are we, I'm talking and like this to her, a couple from church walks past. They walk past like, hey, pastor. I'm like, hey. <laughs> God is good all the time. And we finally get, and I'm trying to get my girl to understand if you will trust me with the process, then the promise will get to you. The problem is that too many of us, we throw these spiritual tantrums where God says, I will bless you. I will heal you. I will turn that situation around. But you're throwing this spiritual tantrum. If you would just calm down, trust the process, trust how I'm going to do it, trust when I'm going to do it, trust in through whom I'm going to do it, then the promise will come your way. But you've got to trust, seek me first. Don't seek the promise seek me don't seek the process seek me and trust the process that I'm going in and taking you through but we prolong the process because we do not trust God in all of this all these things will be added but your responsibility is to trust me trust Jesus and you watch your life take a take a turn that you can have peace in the midst of the storm